0: Oh, man, do you want a terrible life? You want misery? Give me misery, then death. Forget your best life now. You want your worst life now. Just misery, pain, anxiety, depression, all those evil, dark things. Only to die alone. That's what you crave. Then 2 Kings chapter 16 is for you. Chapter... 16 of 2 Kings is the way away from the Lord. It is the way away from the Lord. Therefore, it is the way to the world. And the way to the world is the way to false worship. And the way to false worship leads you to misery and death. Nothing creates misery like false worship. Worship, And that's where we find ourselves this morning, chapter 16, 2 Kings. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remilia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. We are now focusing on Judah. Chapter 16, focus, focus is Judah. Chapter 15, the previous chapter, if you recall, chapter 15, centered on Israel, the northern tribe. And it rattled off king after king who did evil in the sight of the Lord. Each king was quickly bounced off stage by conspiracy and murder. And each king in the north led Israel to their destruction. Which is chapter 17. So chapter 15 is is Israel's sin and misery. Chapter 17 will be their demise. The sin and misery of chapter 15 leads to their doom in chapter 17. And tucked between these two chapters... Chapter 16 now lingers on Judah. The focus is the southern kingdom. Ahaz, verse 2, was 20 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned for 16 years in Jerusalem. We're in Jerusalem. But... He's following the way of the northern kings and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God as his father David had done. Just like the northern kings, now in chapter 16, Judah does evil in the eyes of the Lord. And this led him to walk in the way, it says verse 3, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel and he even burned So he's walking in the ways of Israel. So he's walking away because that's the northern way. The northern way is away from the Lord. And that way away from the Lord leads to the way of grievous sin. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering. According to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel... So he walked in the way of the northern kingdom, which is the way away from the Lord, led to the world, which led to grievous sin. He began his way away from God's word, which now paves the way to the world and its sins, which paves the way to misery and death. When it says whom the Lord drove out, that's, that's code for God killed them all. God cleansed the land of the wickedness and the idolatry. So by driving out means death. Misery and death. Sin leads to misery and death. Want misery? Want death? Follow Judah. Judah who took the wide gate. The way of the world that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many the way, the way away from God's word and it's the way to the world and he went away from God and, and he was quite religious about it, verse 4 and he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree he made sacrifices the high places, we've been seeing the high places over and over, the high places are false worship he worshipped falsely and he was very idolatrous the hyperbole under every green tree just emphasizes his idolatry he filled judah he filled the land with idolatry he filled the land with false worship this is evil the evil in the eyes of the lord throughout second kings even first kings the evil is false worship and chapter 16 is a manual for false worship. It's a how-to. So i got a how-to sermon for you this morning. How to worship falsely. And my original question stands, do you want a terrible life? Worship falsely. This morning, I want to show you how. I want to show you how to be an idolater so pay attention. If you want a terrible life, <laughs> if you want a terrible life, false worship—it's where it's where it's at. If you want terrible life, false worship is where it's at. Verse five. Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, they came. Right? They came and attacked. They came up and they waged war on Jerusalem. They besieged Ahaz, but they could not conquer. So then, the verse sixteen begins. That's an adverb. It's a causal adverb. Then came Rezin. Because of the idolatry, then came foreign aggression. That sounds familiar because that's chapter 15. In chapter 15, Israel sinned against the Lord with idolatry. Then came Assyria. Now, the south practices idolatry. Then came northern aggression. After sinning grievously against the Lord, there's aggression at Judah's gate. But she's not enslaved by it. It says, "But they could not conquer." Will Judah face now the same bondage for her sin as the north? Perhaps not. They could not conquer. Judah survives the initial attack, but they could not conquer. Verse six: At that time, Rezin, the resident of king of Syria, recovered Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath. The Edomites came in, and now they dwell there to this day. So they did not conquer, they were not conquered. Judah wasn't conquered, but they're weakened. They lost Elath, which is a port city, a crucial port city. So the territory, the, their armies are weakened. Their land is now smaller. And that's what happened up north. Up north, they weren't conquered right away, they lost land, they lost crucial places. They became exposed and then they were conquered now Judah the south is exposed weaker survived but lost ground survived but became weaker smaller and weaker are they now exposed that's the way of false worship by the way it leaves you exposed to the wrath of God he's a consuming fire. If you want the worst life now, worship unacceptably, and you will feel it. You'll feel, you'll feel your idolatry. It will come with depression, anxiety, pain, and trouble. Your worst life now. And so Judah now probably can't survive another attack. They've been weakened. They've been small, made smaller. They have two kings surrounding him. But Ahaz had a plan. Verse 7. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, Here's what you want to underline. I am your servant and your son. I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. I am your servant and your son. Those terms that term servant and son are that's covenantal that's covenantal language this is the covenantal language of the ancient near east this is how they talked in the ancient near east when they were forming suzerain vassal treaties with each other when a greater king when a smaller king is requesting the help of a greater king this is the language we have museum pieces you can go to museums all over the world and And there are museum pieces that use this language of the ancient Near East, servant and son. Matter of fact, not only the term servant and son, but this whole paragraph right here is ancient terminology. It's, It's an ancient covenantal formula. It's ancient covenantal language. Every part of this form is an ancient covenant formula. So there is the announcement of invasion. Then there is the offering, verse 8. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was formed in the house of the, found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And then the treaty will go and explain resolution from a superior king, verse 9. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Ker and killed Rezin. And now Ahaz is a subservient servant of Tig. That's what we'll call him from now on. Good old Tig. <laughs> Ahaz now serves Tig. He's a subservient servant. Tig is the suzerain. Ahaz his vassal. And so the story, the story actually calls Tig king four times. Throughout the text it's King Ahaz did this. The king A or not King Ahaz. The king of Assyria, king of it, keeps saying king, 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 king. Whereas Ahaz is merely just son and servant. It's the narrator's way of showing you who's in charge now. Assyria has become Israel's master and lord. They will now look. Israel will, or Judah, excuse me, Judah will now look to Assyria for protection and care. They will give Assyria a tithe. Even if they have to rob Yahweh. Even if they have to rob the Lord to pay the vassal price. He will steal from the Lord and give his allegiance to another. And by doing so, Ahaz has made Yahweh subservient to Tig and his God. This is false worship. False worship begins by taking what belongs to the Lord alone and giving it to another. False worship takes what belongs to the Lord and gives it to another. You see, friends, everyone worships. We're all worshipers. We're all created to worship. Everyone worships. The question is, whom will you serve? Not if, but who. You see, the Lord promised to deliver Israel. The Lord delivered. We've seen it over and over again. They've seen it. He's proved to be Almighty God. He's proved to be faithful father who loved and cared for his people. But Ahaz forgot. The world dulled his senses to biblical truths. When you go away from God, you go to the way of the world. And the way of the world will dull your senses to the things of God. And you'll begin, little by little, to trust the world more and more. Ahaz forgot God. He forgot to place his trust in the Lord. And false worship begins with a lack. False worship begins with the lack of trust in God. It begins with the lack of of trust in his word. Reformed Christians are often charged as legalist by our evangelical counterparts. I hear it all the time. I've been called a legalist by evangelicals all the time. And I'm on the legalist because I don't have evangelical practices. We don't have evangelical practices. We don't practice like the evangelicals. You see, they are, they are free. They are free to do the faith as they will. They are free to worship as they want. But see, you're, we're yoked to God's word. We're, we're yoked to Christ. We're servants of the word, the word alone. And so the scripture binds us. And they are free. But we believe freedom of man is dangerous because we don't trust man. We don't trust man. Fear of man binds you to man's will and man's way. And it's not freedom. It's not freedom to follow the opinions, commandments, desires, and passions of men. That's how you false worship. Fear men and give to the world. If you fear man, you will give to the world what belongs to God. What belongs to God is complete obedience. Obedience. And we fear men so much because we fear God so little. And one fear cures the other. By the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil and find peace. By the fear of man, they run themselves into evil and only find misery. Want a miserable life? Our help is in the name of man. No. That will lead to misery. Our hope is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Our help is not in the name of man. So let me ask you do you pray as much as you seek therapy? Do you pray more than therapy, perhaps? Is that the way it should be? It should be therapy and prayer less, or prayer more and therapy less? Do you go to God's Word as much as you go to counseling? Is your hope your pocketbook? Is your only comfort, family, friends, maybe recreation? Is it your home? Is it power? Is it yourself? Where does your trust lie? Where it lies is what you will worship. All men worship, but not all worship God. Who do you fear? Is the question. Verse 10, when King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tig, <laughs> Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was on Damascus, and King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar, its pattern and exact details. Basically, he wants this altar. He want, The altar in Damascus was the altar that served Asher. Asher was the god of, of Assyria. It's the Assyrian's god. And, and he wanted this foreign altar. And he wanted this foreign altar, this altar that was dedicated to Asher, he wanted in Israel because he wanted to worship Yahweh according to the world. And that's what we see in verse 12 and following. And when, king, when the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar, and then he drew near, he went up on it, and then he burns all these offerings. And all these offerings that follow are burnt on the altar given to, uh, that's Asher's altar. These are all the requirements of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. So he's actually doing the Yahwistic religion, but on a false altar. So he's doing religion proper... No, not properly, but he is, he's using the name of Yahweh, and he's using the Bible, kind of. Like a good populist, right? That's what we are as Americans. Our religion is of the people, by the people, for the people. He did his own thing, but he still did some Bible. Verse 15, and King Ahaz commanded the priest saying on the great altar, burn all these salt in the morning offerings of, you know, all the various offerings. That's verses 15 through 16. It's, it's the Deuteronomistic religion, but on a false altar. Do some Bible. This was worship with some Bible. So, so there, there was some Bible there. But it was truly worship according to man. There was some Bible there. Kind of reminds me of the seeker-sensitive church. There's some Bible there. But they go to the world and ask, what do you want in worship? What do you seek, world? We'll give it to you. But we will keep up the appearance of the Bible. There will be Bible but not its power. You see, Ahaz made worship sensitive to Tig's needs. By replacing this foreign altar with the altar of Yahweh, Ahaz symbolically, symbolically made Yahweh subservient to Asher. Assyria had conquered Damascus. That's why it was the, Dam- the Damascene altar. Assyria had come in, conquered Damascus, set up the Asher altar, this, This Damascene altar was transformed into Assyria's altar. And now Ahaz is doing the same. He's taking Judah's altar. And making it subservient to this Damascene altar. This altar to a false god. And he's submitting Yahweh's reign. He's submitting his own rule. He's already submitted his rule. And now he submits Yahweh's rule. To Assyria. You see, worship according to the world places your trust always away from God's world and God's word, and a in in its way to the world. And the way of the world is the way of false worship. And your passions and desires will follow. You will worship. Everyone worships. The question is, who do you worship? And he went on to change more verse seventeen, and King A has cut off the frames of the stands and removed the basin from him, and he took down the sea from off the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on a stone pedal. so he continues to remake and remove worship he 's continuing to remake and remove worship after the will of assyria he 's doing what Assyria wants, and he covered the way for the Sabbath and that had been built inside the house in the outer entrance for the king. He calls to go around the house of the Lord because of the king of Assyria. Assyria was the seeker. He went out to Assyria. How do you guys want to worship? How would you feel most at home in Judah? Worshiping a false god? Well, we'll do that too. We'll give you that. We'll sprinkle some Bible over it, but we'll do that. So he continued to remake worship. It had a liturgical effect. Now they couldn't enter the house of the Lord the appropriate way. They had to go around a certain... They had to go a different direction. So the way he changed in altar worship had this liturgical effect. He changed and moved things around, and that affected the prescribed movements of worship. You see, everything in the temple, God prescribed, even the way they entered and the things that they did. It's all liturgical. All of the movements... Before Yahweh in the temple and the tabernacle were movements that God controlled, that God gave, and they answered. The people called, or God called and the people answered. There's this liturgical movement in scripture. The Bible is liturgical. It alone moves us. That's what it means to be liturgical. The Bible alone moves us. Because sola scriptura, sola scriptura means liturgical. We're moved by the Bible alone. It moves it conducts and transforms and leads us. And and we worship accordingly, liturgically. We don't move by the seeker. We don't move by the world. We don't move by emotion. We don't move by money, sex, well-being. We don't move by happiness. None of these things move our worship. We move by the cross. So we take up the cross daily. Every day. You see, Christianity is not populist. It's Bible alone. So worship is covenantal. Covenantal means God controls. God controlled every element of Israel's worship. The temple, like the tabernacle, and even at Sinai was a place appointed by Yahweh to meet with his people. There he would bless them. There he would love them. There he would be God to them and their children. Worship is covenantal, and covenantal worship is family worship. And covenantal means liturgical. You see, meeting a holy God required a holy space. We can't just come before the king of kings. We can't just willy-nilly come before God. He's holy. We can't just willy-nilly do what we want before the king of kings. To go against God's prescriptions of worship in the Old Testament meant death. Think about the ark. You, can't, you couldn't even move the ark. We all know the story of the, of the ark when David moved the ark. You couldn't even just pick up the ark and go about the ark any way you wanted without death. There was prescription for every movement with the things of God. All the things of God in the Old Testament, there was complete control by God. Because he's a narcissist. (laughs) That's what we might think when we read this. Cancel culture. Narcissist. No, it's because he's holy. He's holy. He gives us liturgy because he's holy. And he gives us liturgy because he's merciful. You see, liturgy protects simple people from a holy God. Liturgy protects simple people from a holy God. And liturgy creates a holy space where a holy God can meet with a sinful people. So the liturgy protects. Liturgy is gospel. In Christ, we are saved from God's wrath. So the cross, the cross centers our liturgy. You see, we must be called out of the word. The liturgy must have this effect of call and response. And we respond with sin. Sin. We confess our sins. The liturgical movement before God is confession of sin and and the forgiveness of those sins. We worship to be forgiven. We come to worship to be forgiven of all our sins. And it happens. Liturgy makes it happen. And it happens only through Christ. The liturgy is Christ-centered. And the liturgy not only protects, the liturgy provides. You see, Christ's life must lead our worship. Every movement of the liturgy must lift us up to heaven. Lift up your eyes. We lift our eyes up to the Lord. The corda. Everything in the worship lifts us up to heaven. The liturgy lifts us up to heaven's gates where we receive Christ and Him crucified. Where we come before Christ and we receive His life. And we become righteous. Liturgy makes it happen. We must be made righteous. It must happen. It happens only in Christ. The liturgy is Christ-centric. And the liturgy makes Christ serve us. That's the liturgical movement of the gospel. The liturgical movement of gospel is Christ works. In worship, friend, we're not working here. Christ is. He is bowing himself with the servant's cloth wrapped around his waist to wash his disciples' feet. In worship, Christ is washing away all our sins. He serves. And we love Because he first loved us. He renews us. By his spirit. That is the liturgy. And that is why God is protective of worship. Because it's still covenantal. So it must be only biblical. And it must be liturgical. So that we have the elements that are proper. That is Christ and his benefits. Given to us. Through his means. And here, listen to this too. This is what Americans really need to hear. The liturgy indicates our desire for and our submission to a holy God. You see, liturgy means we trust God alone. It is our faith. It is our repentance. It is our obedience. It is our thankfulness. The liturgy is how we show God and the world That we are subservient servants of God. We do what he says. And we show the world that we do not follow their ways. We do not go the way of the world. We go the way of God. And liturgy shows our trust, our commitment. Liturgy says, I don't trust man. I don't trust you. I don't trust your ways. Liturgy makes this place holy. It gives us Christ. Liturgy is how we have a relationship with a holy God. Liturgy is our trust, our submission, our piety. But ignore all that if you want your worst life now. Make worship about you, make it about your feelings and what you get out of it. And above all, make it look like the world. Here's what you do today. You think to yourself, what would Taylor Swift do? And you do that. And you'll have a bunch of Swifties. (laughs) And make the sermons, make sure the sermons are all about, mostly about you, sprinkle in some Bible, but really make it about you. Use God. Don't worship God. Use God. Use God to get over your trouble. Use God to be a better you. Don't focus on Christ. Because that will only lead to your only comfort in life and in death. But we want misery. So make it all about you. All about you is the menu of worship. And misery will follow even while you're worshiping your best life now. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. Let us pray. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.